Hi, welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saad. You're listening to WFNU LP, St. Paul, Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Thanks to Manny Mestas for that opening music. And just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at C Miriam. That's C M I R. I-A-M, and you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also reach our show at RadicalNewsRadioHour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about climate and environmental justice within a racial equity framework. We're going to be hearing from representatives from Minnesota 350, MN350, and Youth Environmental Activist Campaign, and we'll be talking about the ways to get involved with climate and environmental justice work here in Minnesota. Just a reminder, if you've got feedback on a story or a story tip, please email us. Again, that's the Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com. Today, we're discussing climate and environmental justice. Climate justice and environmental justice are movements that frame issues like climate change and pollution through a political and economic lens, rather than as just physical movements. In Minnesota, the work for climate justice and environmental justice happens across urban and rural communities. In North Minneapolis, for example, climate and environmental justice organizers are, have been taking on increased rates of asthma amongst Northsiders, lead in school fountains, and had spent years fighting against northern metals recycling. In order to more effectively understand this work, however, we need to understand what climate justice is, what environmental justice is, and what the relationship between climate change and environmentalism are when intersected with racial equity. Here's Sarah Riedel from Minnesota 350, MN 350. Uh, Riedel has been an MN 350 volunteer for a year, She's the leader with the MN350 Food Systems Team and does work as a communications liaison between the food system team and the communication team. Um, all of the different types of injustice that we see are the result of the same extractive system, um, the same extractive mindset that prioritizes the accumulation of wealth into the hands of a few over the health and well-being of the whole. So, you know, the climate crisis, the destruction of ecosystems and of rural communities by the industrial food system, um, the existence of food deserts in the wealthiest country and some of the wealthiest cities in the world, um, and you know the genocide and forced assimilation of indigenous populations upon which this country was built, and slavery and its legacy, including mass incarceration and police brutality, all of that stems from the same mindset that extractive mm -hmm. mindset that views power as power over rather than power with. Mm -hmm. um, that's the soup we're all swimming in. Um, whether we want it or not, like that is the system we're in. So if we want to make progress on any of those issues, we have to work together to dismantle that mindset um, mm -hmm. because that is the root cause of all of those issues. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to think about the intersection of food justice and racial equity. Like both issues require dismantling the same system. So we're kind of all in this together. And mm -hmm. solving one issue is progress on others. So 
um, it all it all works together. And another way of of thinking about it, um, I actually just heard recently. This is I can't take credit for this, but this this is something that um, MN350's executive director Sam Grant said recently during a panel discussion with Bill McKibben, um, who is the founder of 350.org. And Sam is an incredible speaker, and he's always inspirational. Um, and I'll try I'll try my best here to. Yeah, and I actually know him. Oh, yeah, okay, great. Um, mm -hmm. So you know how amazing he is. Um, but he suggested that we remember um, that as climate activists, we should put on our, like, environmentalist hats. And again, mm -hmm. Sam says it better than me, just paraphrasing. Um, but we should remember that at its roots, the climate movement is an environmental movement and that we should take the broadest view of the definition of environment. So our environment is our air and our water and our land, yes, um, but it's also our communities and our relationships. And not just our relationship with the land, but also our relationships with each other. So basically it's everything that surrounds us. And when you look at it through that framework, for me anyway, it feels very obvious that part of our work must be to make sure that our communities and our relationships are healthy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it should go without saying that the, like, the continued murder of black people and people of color by police is not a sign of a healthy community, mm -hmm. right? So in the end, what it comes down to is that a community that can turn a blind eye to racial injustice and inequity will also turn a blind eye to climate injustice. So anything that we can do as climate activists to support and nourish and amplify the leaders in the racial justice movement right now is, is time well spent um, because it's just another way of, of caring for, for our environment. MN350 is a climate justice organization that's part of three, uh, 350.org an international climate change movement organization. Here's Riedel again. Um, the 350 in our name stands for 350 parts per million. So for people that don't know, that is the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that scientists have basically agreed is sort of the upper limit of allowable carbon dioxide for climate stability. Um, currently, we are somewhere between 415 and 420 parts per million. So um, MN350 and 350.org are working to reduce that, to get it back down to 350, which is the, the livable level. Um, and at MN350, our focus is to, is to transition from an extractive economy based on fossil fuels and consumption to a, a sustainable, like life-affirming economy. And we, we recognize that it's, it's not enough to just get us out of this extractive economy that has led to the climate crisis. We're also seeking justice for those who have been hurt most by this system. So we want to make sure that the benefits flow first to marginalized communities that have historically been excluded from economic gains. Um, and, and our vision for climate justice extends to reclaiming and repairing our broken democracy as well. So we're working on that aspect. Um, we're demanding that our leaders act boldly um, to make this transition happen as fast as possible and to ensure that all voices are heard and honored in securing a, a safe and livable climate.
Last week, MN350 held an action against Cargill, an international agribusiness that provides services around agriculture, animal, protein, food, and financial and industrial services for farmers. Again, it's an international organization, uh, a international business, but it's headquartered here in Minnesota. Here's Riedel talking about the action. So last week there was, um, we, we collaborated with our partner Mighty Earth um, to do a demonstration outside the home of Cargill CEO David McLennan. Um, and this is, this actually started last summer, um, again in collaboration with Mighty Earth um, to organize a series of demonstrations, which ultimately resulted in Cargill's promise last December to cut their supply chain emissions by 30%, uh, which was, a, you know, we celebrated that. It was a big win um, because Cargill has not really used that type of language before. Um, but Cargill also has a bad track record when it comes to keeping these types of promises. And, you know, sure enough, uh, Cargill has continued to incentivize burning rainforests as well as human rights, human rights abuses in its supply chain. And it, it's choosing corporate profits over the healthy ecosystems that we need. Um, so last Wednesday, as part of a national day of action, calling on companies to cut ties with forest destroyers, um, the MN350 food systems team once again partnered with Mighty Earth. We answered their call um, to show Cargill that their words are not enough. Um, and I don't, I don't know the final numbers, but um, there were like between 30 and 40 people that showed up and marched to the home of, of Cargill CEO, David McLennan, um, from a nearby park. And so that was just the most recent continuation of our partnership to put pressure on Cargill, which is an international leader in agribusiness, but it's based right here in our community. MN350 is also reintroducing legislation during the next legislative biennium. It's the Headwaters Food and Water Bill. Here's some more details on that. The food systems team in particular, our big push is um, the Headwaters Community Food and Water Bill, uh -huh. um, which was written by um, Marita Bujold. She, is, she lives in St. Paul. Um, and the bill would establish the funding and infrastructure that we need for a regenerative, local, inclusive food economy. Um, and it's based on the work that's already being done by leaders in the regenerative food community. So um, basically the Headwaters Community Food and Water Bill um, would establish funding for an entirely different food system. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier that the, the industrial food system um, is a publicly funded system um, and it relies on practices that oppress farmers and destroy ecosystems and which broke down in the face of, of a pandemic. We saw that when producers were destroying cop, uh, crops while people in grocery stores were looking at empty cells. Um, and it's a major contributor to climate change. And all of that is paid for by our tax dollars. Mm -hmm. um, so the Headwaters Bill recognizes that we have a right to demand that our money is spent on a food system that depends on healthy ecosystems and healthy relationships between our communities. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the Headwaters Bill would do. Um, it, would, it would basically, I like to say it would put our money where our mouths, where our mouths are because mm -hmm. it would take our public money, our tax dollars, and fund a food system that, can, that not only provides for us, like that provides sustenance rather than profits, 
um, but that could continue to do so for future generations. So mm -hmm. um, that's our big push right now is building the coalition around the Headwaters Bill and working to get that passed. Locally, youth environmental activist campaign, sometimes called Yeah or Yay campaigns, has also been taking action. Here's Akira Yano, a youth leadership mentor who began working for Climate Generation, a Will Steger uh, legacy, which hosts Yeah campaigns around a year ago. So Yeah campaigns is actually, um, it's a relative, it's a somewhat new program. It's a reimagining of a previous youth program that was built on campaigns that Climate Generation, Climate Generation was in collaboration with. Um, but we are now fully like reimagining the program within our own youth programming. And so, yeah, campaigns um, kind of operates out of the idea that like youth, like young voices right now, like they can have a, a really big impact in a short time among local elected bodies in public opinion, like within the surrounding community. So, like within the context of our current like social situation, you know, as we shift into this like period of like unprecedented like unknown like it becomes increasingly important to prioritize like the physical emotional and like mental well-being of the developing generations right now mm -hmm. and so the campaign seeks to kind of prioritize that while also like empowering their voices um, through elected bodies so the structure of the program is essentially it's going to assemble um, a cohort of five youth leaders who are going to be mentored virtually using an online curriculum that's rooted in climate justice and healing organizing skills to take on campaigns for climate action in their local communities. And so the program length, um, there's going to be two cycles. It'll essentially be like one half of the school year is each cycle. So the first one will go from the beginning of the school year to about winter break. Um, and the second cycle will begin following winter break and go until summer. And the curriculum will guide you to build campaigns with local partners, uh, identifying effective local climate solutions and systemic change that they want to see in their community, and learning how to work collaboratively with other youth um, across our youth programming. So essentially the goal of the program is that uh, the youth leaders will get, brought into the will get brought into the program, and then through that mentorship and curriculum, they'll be able to identify uh, an issue that that's important to them and their community that relates to climate change in some way, um, and they will be building a campaign around that issue to eventually bring that uh, to propose a kind of a sense of climate action that they want to see happen, and then they will bring that proposal to an appropriate elected body. So this can be something like a school board, um, a city or township. Um, elected body, like county commission. So that's like a pretty open in terms of like who they'll be presenting this to. Um, and also just like be building strategies to like recruit diverse leaders um, along the way through relationships with their peers, other educators, so like school teachers, as well as like community educators um, and other partner organizations all while like prioritizing um, or holding a priority for diverse racial class and gender representation to help grow like the next generation of climate leadership. Mm -hmm. Yano also discussed the intersections between climate change and racial equity. This is actually like the, the area, one of the areas that I'm like most passionate about um, and actually is what got me into 
just environmental organizing as a whole was really just seeing um, how racial inequities really reinforce the issue of climate change and vice versa. Um, I feel that at its root, like climate change disproportionately like impacts um, black, indigenous, and other communities of color, um, both within the United States and internationally. Um, some examples I feel like that kind of exemplify this um, can be seen, well, I'm gonna be grounding this kind of locally within Minnesota, um, but for me, one of the things that really hammered home this concept was uh, when I was doing um, organizing uh, around the HERC incinerator, uh, which is the Henergy, uh, Hennepin County Energy um, Recovery Center. Um, so essentially, it's uh, at its essence, it's kind of just a giant garbage burner, um, which is marketed um, by Hennepin County somewhat as like a source of renewable energy. Um, despite the fact that the pollutants and the chemicals that are emitted from the HERC um, actively uh, impact like predominantly uh, black communities and um, communities of color. And this is like a pattern that's not just only, only happening in Minneapolis, it's actually happening across the country. Um, and you can replace the HERC with other large sources of pollutants um, such as freeways, uh, large factories, um, and other just like general sources of toxic uh, chemicals and pollutants, which then result in like health hazardous conditions um, such as asthma. And yeah, these health conditions are extremely, extremely serious. They can literally result in death in addition to um, larger issues for families and communities, um, increasing like the burdens on like for healthcare and everything like that, which is a whole conversation in and of itself. Um, as well as I think it's really important to also acknowledge like um, being uh, how indigenous communities really play into the concept of environmental justice, because um, I view like indigenous communities as the, the first environmental um, justice warriors or uh, water protectors, they're really the people who have been doing, who've been fighting this fight ever since um, this country was kind of created. Um, this country is really rooted in environmental justice in the sense that colonization is how the, how the United States really came to be um, through extractive methods from European colonizers, um, taking advantage of indigenous lands and resources um, and exploiting them for their own gain. And those effects have been continually felt throughout like centuries, um, still being felt today. Some like tangible examples of this include like the Dakota Access Pipeline in recent years, um, a large oil pipeline that was originally um, set to be marked through Bismarck, North Dakota, if I'm not mistaken. Um, which was a predominantly white community. You know, nobody really wants an oil pipeline going through their neighborhood. Uh, I think that's a pretty universal feeling. Uh, and so the residents of Bismarck kind of uh, used, like, just kind of made their voices heard and were like, hey, we don't want this. And then so it was then determined that the pipeline would be rerouted um, very close to indigenous lands, um, infringing on treaty rights, um, and also it would be crossing over this river. Um, I don't remember the name of the river uh, off the top of my head, unfortunately, but 
I know that the river is of significant importance to the indigenous communities in that area, both as a source for water and other resources, but also just like extreme cultural significance. Um, I believe that the, the pipeline was also very close to sacred burial ground, which would then become um, inaccessible for that community, which honestly is completely unacceptable for numerous reasons. Um, and then the resulting protests, which were all peaceful, um, nonviolent from water protectors, were then met with systemic violence by um, security, um, security forces, as well as law enforcement um, officers who were brought in from not only just from North Dakota, but also from Minnesota as well. Mm -hmm. to then um, kind of just reinforce the pipeline. So, yeah, I think all of those things are just like a small piece of the puzzle when it comes to um, talking about how like racial equity ties into the issue of climate change. It's a huge concept, but I think those are just some like good examples that help to kind of demonstrate those intersections. Both MN350's actions at Cargill and the new YAG campaigns are major elements of Minnesota's climate and environmental justice movements. And there's a lot of ways to get involved. Here's Yano. I'd say the first thing um, people can get involved is, is to learn. Um, I'd say that never before in like recent history have, all, have um, a lot of people had such easy access to just an infinite wealth of information um, such as like through the internet for some means. Um, and the other thing is I really, I'd like to um, tackle the concept of like what people view the work. So I think that when we talk about doing the work, a lot of the thing that comes to mind for a lot of people, and this is the thing that came to mind for me for a long time, um, is only external work. Like how can you do things for other people? How can you um, produce like external results? Um, and I kind of, my, my perspective on what the work is has kind of shifted into a duality of both internal and external work. Because first, I, I think it's difficult, extremely difficult to effectively engage your community and others um, in addressing deep-rooted issues if you have yet to engage the issues within yourself first. Mm -hmm. So I mean this to say, like, all of us in the United States are inherently raised and conditioned by a society that is deeply rooted in values of white supremacy and extractive practices. And so we kind of, and until we become aware of that and put intention into unlearning those values and replacing them with different ones, the impact of our actions will largely reflect the goals of that system um, despite our intentions to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I think some good points to kind of like begin that learning as well as that unlearning process. Um, I think some like the Hemes principles are a really good way of kind of finding out um, some solid frameworks and grounding your work. Um, I think also hearing and learning about the experiences of different communities in regards to environmental injustice is an important step um, getting involved. So I think uh, one book that I would recommend off of that is um, Toxic Communities by, by uh, Arthetta E. Taylor. And yeah, so I think learning is a big part. And then I think another big, really big part is, is building connections in doing in um in your learning journey. Um and yeah, so like one of the biggest things that have helped me in that are not just like articles that I've read or books that I've read, but 
really like the people that I've connected with along the way who share like a similar vision for the future society that we want to live in. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it's just as important to learn from our interactions and like relationships with one, one another as it is to learn from mediums such as like videos or books or things that we find on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. Because systemic issues really can't be addressed in isolation. Uh, the only way that I, I feel that we will really change things is through like a collective effort, um, and that means helping bring people along the way. So mm-hmm. I, I view that we have a duty in this work to learn from people who have been doing this work before us, just as I feel it's our duty to support the learning of others as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so some tangible actions that I can think of um, for folks who are seeking to do this would just Maybe just do some research about, like, some organizations who maybe are involved in doing environmental work um, in your area or specifically environmental justice work. Maybe think about how they compare to the the readings you've been doing or the HEMES principles, for example. Um, and in that, I mean, I know that we're, we're in, like, a pandemic right now, so that's um, going to, like, in-person meetings and connecting with people is now um, more difficult. There are more barriers for that. Um, but I have also seen, like, a lot of organizations transition into just having, like, virtual meetings. Um, so maybe are there some, like, meetings you can, like, plug into? Um, is there, if it's something that you're, you might feel uncomfortable just going to by yourself, is there, like, a friend you might try and bring along the way? Um, and even so, like, like, you don't even necessarily have to plug into an organization to begin with. Like, you could just be bringing another person all along with your re- with your reading journey. Like, you could start a book club with somebody. Um, you could just, just talk with your friends about, like, what you've been learning about. Um, and that's definitely what part of what I view the work to be doing because just overall shifting um, the consciousness of yourself and others is really helpful in just, pursuing that vision that we all want to see of like an equitable future where everyone has access to a healthy environment and safety. You can participate in the discussion on climate and eco-justice by tweeting me at cmiriam, that's C-M-I-R-I-A-M. And just a reminder that you're listening to the Radical News Radio Hour on WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Last week, I was invited to attend a roundtable discussion by the Biden for President campaign on economic equity as a reporter representing this show and my work with The Uptake, a community news organization. It was an interesting discussion hosted by former Attorney General Eric Holder and Minnesota Senator Patricia Torres Ray, a DFLer who represents District 63 in Minneapolis which includes parts of Lake Street most impacted by the unrest that unfolded after the killing of George Floyd. The event was also attended by the owner of Gandhi Mahal Restaurant in Minneapolis, Ruhal Islam, NDN Collective Fund Managing Director Nikki Love, and Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development, DEED, Deputy Commissioner Hamza Warfa. Here's a clip from that roundtable discussion of DEED Deputy Commissioner Hamza Warfa discussing economic equity and economic security in the state of Minnesota and what the state needs to do to ensure economic equity for all BIPOC communities, both because of and regardless of COVID-19. 
Thank you so much, uh, Senator Torres Ray, and thanks to our uh, excellent leadership of the Biden campaign in our state. Uh, couldn't be more proud of the team that uh, has been developed here in our state. Uh, first, I want before I respond, I just want to also uh, start by uh, saying his name uh, and you know George Floyd, and acknowledge the uh, police violence against black men. Uh, and when we talk about you know economic security, uh, the first thing you know that we should talk about is uh, physical security and making sure that people feel people have a sense of safety and security, uh, both you know from state violence and city and uh, both you know organized and non-organized uh, violence and and so i just want to acknowledge you know the impact uh, that police violence has on the economic security physical security of people especially black men in our state and country uh, secondly you know uh, when we talk about economic security we're talking about you know jobs we're talking about uh, transportation, we're talking about healthcare. And so it's really important to think the ecosystem approach of economic security. And we recognize that while the state is doing very well, not everyone in the state is doing well. Uh, we have so many black and brown people who are disproportionately impacted even before COVID, but then since COVID has hit, uh, for example, 50% of uh, black labor force uh, participants applied UI. And so you can see the disproportionate number of uh, black people who are on, you know, uh, displaced workers. Uh, same thing, you know, 40% indigenous, uh, 28% uh, Asian American and so forth, uh, Latino, X and Hispanic, you know. And so the first thing we need to do is really effectively track uh, uh, the uh, impacts of COVID-19 on marginalized communities who were living on the margins of our, of our economy before COVID hit. And the next thing we need to do is align resources with the data that we have that we have been tracking that shows the disproportionate impact. Uh, and so that clearly, you know, has to show up in policies. Uh, if we want to address uh, economic uh, racial justice, we have to address it both in our culture, in our institutions, in our social programs, in our policies. And so that's really the first step is tracking the effect and the impact of COVID-19 and then aligning that with resources. The second is, you know, uh, as we think about communities, we have to uh, think the impact of the digital divide that exists, whether it's in the workforce space, where so many people don't have access to uh, digital skill training pro uh, programs, and quite frankly, parents who don't even have the resources, the technological tools to empower their children to be successful in school. And so the impact of uh, digital divide in our education, which often is you know, the critical uh, gateway to successful employment and so forth. Uh, and so we have to put policies in place that addresses the issue of digital divide. And then the third area that I would like to highlight is the area of uh, you know, communities that have been highly underinvested. I can tell you as a black founder of, co-founder of a technology company that now works in uh, over 20 countries, uh, getting access to venture capital, getting access to even, you know, basic seed round funding is extremely, extremely challenging for black and brown uh, communities. And, uh, you know, there's so many innovative ideas, so many innovators in our communities 
they lack the resources to bring their ideas to uh, you know reality for the benefit of our country and so any equity and i'm really excited to see the biden campaign uh incorporate you know venture capital uh re looking at uh you know uh targeted efforts uh for investment in uh black and brown communities critically needed i see that as i travel across the state uh, and also as a co-founder and a, you know as an entrepreneur uh, and finally in the interest of time i, I think it's really important to uh, empower uh, decision makers who have lived experiences and who know what their community needs. Uh, oftentimes we see a top-down approach in how we want to solve uh, problems. And I think as the Attorney General uh, started in his opening remarks, uh, the importance of uh, this moment and now, and this you know, moment of reckoning, uh, it's really critical that we empower uh, leaders of color who know what their communities need, who have lived experiences, but also who have the knowledge and the expertise to bring ideas that moves our communities uh, closer to the aspirations that we all have, uh, which is a beloved community as MLK has envisioned for us. So thank you for having me. Thanks for this thank conversation so and welcome Attorney General Eric Holder. I wanted to share that clip, not because it's audio from a Biden roundtable, but because we need to continue discussing racial equity in all elements of this show and I want to center the information and the to-dos that Deputy Commissioner Warfa discussed in what he shared. Also, just a few quick announcements before I leave you for today. The Uptake, where I serve as Executive Director, will be offering a number of community journalism trainings in the coming two months. These are always free, but, you know, donations are always welcome. And you can find the information on the upcoming trainings on Facebook. The first upcoming training is August 15 from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., and right now, all of our trainings are being held via Zoom. And that's it for now. Next week, we'll be continuing this series exploring different local organizing movements, and we'll be discussing missing and murdered Indigenous women more specifically. For now, thank you for listening to the Radical News Radio Hour. You can reach us, uh, you can reach us at RadicalNewsRadioHour at gmail.com. You can find us at JournalismOfColor.com, and you can listen to all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and several other po uh, podcast platforms. Thanks to Manny Mestis again for this uh, episode's opening and closing theme music, as per usual. And for now, you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM.